the hammerheads will very, very slowly, it's interesting to watch, they'll very slowly ascend up the reef with their mouths open. And hammerheads are goofy looking as it is, but then to see them very slowly swimming with their mouth wide open and having these, these fish just go up and eat the parasites was really that's John Coetz, free diver and underwater photographer, describing his days with hammerhead sharks at the Cocos Islands. One of many stories today on this Ocean Life podcast with me, Josh Peterson. John Coetz left the cold, fresh waters of Michigan to find his calling in warm, tropical waters around the world. As an underwater photographer, John has captured stunning shots of people, animals, and scenes in places like Hawaii, Bahamas, Costa Rica, and more. While developing his strength as a freediver, John has also developed a deep respect for ocean conservation, and along with stories of swimming with hammerhead sharks, mantas, pilot whales, shares his perspective on protecting our oceans and the animals we all love. If you can, take a look at John's photography on Instagram, at j.coetz, while you listen to his stories today. His work's pretty epic. Now, if you're like me, and you hate using the plastic bags of grocery stores for your produce, hit up Google for washable produce bags, and pick up a set of the reusable kind today. It makes a ton of sense. Thanks for caring about the ocean, and thanks for being here today, sharing in the ocean life of John Coetz. I hope you enjoy. So last night, my family and I are like into baseball. We're watching the World Series, you know, and, and I watched probably like half of the game because I was stuck on your Instagram, meaning like just kind of getting lost and all the rad shots of animals and people and ocean scenes, you know, that you had. Uh, so if you would, man, just start today where you're at with your photography, because I, I don't know, I, I think it's really pretty epic and you're doing some cool stuff. Uh, well, thank you. First of all, I appreciate that. It's kind of just been an interesting journey. I got into this about a year and a half ago. And I originally I had moved out to Maui. Um, so a little bit of background, I'm a travel nurse. And mm -hmm. so I take ER contracts wherever. And so I had my last Michigan winter. And uh, I was just like, I can't do this anymore. I, I need to get out of here. <laughs> yeah. So I moved out to Maui. And the landscape was so beautiful. I told myself I'd I want to capture this and I want to pick up a camera. So I picked up my first little Nikon and the lady said, there's no need for cameras anymore. Uh, cell phones are good enough that, uh, you know, we can, we can stick with that. So I told myself if I got into it, that I'd really try and learn photography and do beyond what a, a phone could do. Um, so I sat down and just watched tons of YouTube videos, started connecting with other uh, photographers, just learned everything I possibly could without shooting every day, mostly landscape originally. And then took a, a trip to Thailand and Cambodia and was just taking every picture I possibly could out there. After that, I, uh, I've kind of always had a passion for the ocean and GoPro just wasn't doing exactly what I wanted. So I finally decided to look into an underwater housing. Um, so I looked into it for the Nikon and I started looking at who a few mentors, what kind of cameras they were using. And I just decided to go out and get that camera and then ended up buying the full underwater housing for it and uh, kind of head first into everything. Um, <laughs> and I was so excited when I finally spent all the money and got all the gear and, and got in the water. That was my first trip to Big Island, Hawaii was when I had my camera gear. After that, it was just a slow progression. I started having people say, you know, you have really cool pictures or meeting friends with that saw the camera and they're like, oh, let's go out and dive or shoot. Or I, I know this really cool spot with cool arches or caves or um, where there's dolphins playing. 
um, you should get pictures of it and it progressed. And, and the next big stepping stone for me was really learning to edit, um, and especially yeah. underwater where you have a variety of skin tones and then you have colorful reef, but then you have the blue water and trying to really hone in um, my editing skills was the next big hurdle for me that that is still a daily journey. Yeah, I bet. And that's a learning curve, right? I mean, it's just because you said it's so variable and I'm looking at your shots and you're, it's like the ocean color, the air, the water, the, the sky color, the reef, the fish, I mean it must be just a constant learning curve of tweaking your settings a lot of different ways for the same shot and then hoping you get one that just looks killer. Yes. And wherever I'm diving in the world, it changes that so much. Bahamas, you have really clear, um, beautiful water. Hawaii, you have nice blue tones. California here is a, uh, a challenge. You have <laughs> not great visibility and more of a greenish water. And then you have orange kelp. And then when you throw models or wildlife in, there's another tone. It's, it makes it interesting. Yeah, I bet, man. So you had, you picked up the camera, you got a little, you got, you upped your game, got some better equipment, got in the water and people started taking note of the cool stuff you're doing and inviting you, Hey, come shoot this, shoot that. And so over time, have you then kind of looks like parlayed that into either a business or a side business or kind of what are you doing now with this all? So now um, it's, kind of just gotten to the point where it's turning into more than just a hobby. Um, cool. I'm starting to get companies invite me on trips. Um, I'm starting to get companies. It's a little bit of partly the social media and partly being able to get content for them. Yep. So I just went out to Bahamas and um, went out with some resorts out there and we did some above water and underwater shooting. I went on a sailboat for another week and did some shooting with a uh, that was another photographer. And so he did more above water. I did below water and we kind of worked together and, uh, and generated some content there. Also having starting to have more and more people who are interested in the underwater world um, hire me for everything from ocean dives to pool dives to underwater wedding type stuff, yeah. um, underwater engagements, maternity shoots. You know, I've, <laughs> I've had a variety of uh, people be interested in the underwater world. Yeah, that's cool. Like you, it reflects in, in your Instagram and looking at all the different shots and it's everything from animals to women in dresses and a lot of stuff in between. It's really cool. So was that kind of your goal originally to get to this point or was it a hobby that's just now it's morphing into something that's a little bit more like lifestyle sustaining? <laughs> Honestly, when I got into it, I just loved diving and I think I wanted a way to capture the beauty of what I was seeing when I was diving. Originally, I guess I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I just wanted to take cool pictures of um, other divers and the wildlife I was seeing and the beautiful sun rays that are popping through the waves at yeah. uh, sunset and just be able to capture it in general and throughout, I guess, a little bit of social media um, exposure and it, that's morphed into other things as far as, you know, wetsuit companies and fin mm -hmm. companies and really anyone who has underwater apparel starting to contact me and, and put together content or images or work with different models and what whatnot. Yeah, it's so cool, man. So neat how that kind of organically grew. You know, I know there's a ton of hard work and, you know, it's not just taking pictures. That's like sounds super sexy in the water, jumping in with some models or with some nice, uh, a dolphin or a manta ray or something. It's like, there's so much post-processing you must have to do to go through all these thousands of pictures from like a, a couple hours, you know, and then find the ones you like and then tweak them. And like, do you do stuff like post-processing, like Photoshop or other, other programs? Um, right now, I just use Lightroom. I've had a few people look at some of my pictures and say, you Photoshop this. And I'm like, I haven't even downloaded Photoshop. I, uh, Oh, I cool. use Photoshop, so <laughs> yeah. 
So, I mean, I'll, I'll edit colors, you know, and contrast and make tweaks and make things look better, but I don't ever totally Photoshop something in or out yeah, or totally. any, any alter any pictures. So I like yeah. to keep it to get it as close to what I saw in, in the real world. Yeah, killer, man. And so, as you mentioned, you know, you, you were already in the water diving, doing a lot of stuff just on your own. You adopted the camera as a way to, to, to capture what you were seeing. And so, talk about that. I mean, talk about where you kind of started being in the ocean with free diving and spearfishing and everything that led up to sort of adding photography into that. Um, so, it's actually weird when people hear, um, I'm from Michigan originally. So, I did grow up in... Uh, essentially next to one of the biggest freshwater bodies out there. Yeah. But it was definitely not an ocean. <laughs> but believe it or not, we would actually surf um, in the fall. The waves, their waves are all wind generated. They're choppy and they're not like surfing anywhere else, but you can surf a little bit. Yeah, cool. Um, but every summer we'd be out swimming and um, on the boat and then through taking a lot of family vacations to Florida and other places, um, I loved the ocean. I loved the pool. My parents would have to drag me out every time we went anywhere um, with water. And I think my first college degree was actually a business degree. And I kind of got stuck in Michigan through a few more winters. And throughout college, I had traveled abroad quite a bit. So sitting in Michigan through several cold winters, I finally was at a point where I'm like, I, I need to do something different. And I wanted to continue to travel and have and follow my passion for, you know, the ocean. Yeah. So I ended up actually going back to school for travel nursing because I had worked in an ER a little bit throughout college and I knew the flexible schedule and, and I had some friends that were travel nurses. So I went back to school for that, got that done. And then as soon as I got my two years experience, started traveling. My first contract was in Maui. And I stayed there. Generally, the contracts can be anywhere from three months to um, longer. But I stayed in Maui for about a year. And I absolutely just fell in love with Hawaii. Yeah, I bet. Um, it's easy to do. <laughs> yeah. And moving out there, that's when I, I initially was self-taught advanced mm -hmm. snorkeler, I guess, yep. if you will. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I loved kind of pushing myself. Um, but then I took a trip to Thailand and actually took a, um, a freediving class and that changed everything for me. You know, I thought my three minute breath hold was, uh, was good in the pool that I was playing around with. And after one day in the class, uh, I hit four minutes, everything kind of changed for me. And, um, and just learning the proper relaxation techniques, the proper breathing techniques, the water uh, warm up that you can do too was all just very interesting. Yeah, man. And so on Maui, you, you, you basically opened your horizons, you know, and then you went and got some formal training and then you came back to them and spent more time. And then kind of, you also started like spearfishing as well, which is kind of a natural thing to do out there if you like to hold your breath, you know? So, and then you, you morph that into like guiding spearfishing charters, right? Or tours. Yeah. So actually I, uh, in Maui, actually I will say in, in Oahu, before that I had picked up a spear gun and kind of taught myself and um, gone through some fish identification and then started to spear with a few local guys. And then when I went over to Maui, I after taking two free dive classes at that point, I went out there, picked up a gun and started spearfishing with some some local guys that were really good. Mm -hmm. And um, and I was more or less able to hang with them. And um, I was really excited about that. And I started to really learn kind of what, what the really good fish were, what fish not to go for, um, and how to kind of push yourself to another level while still being safe. So actually, after I spearfished with him for a while, he his business uh, was growing so much that he asked me to come on board and start um, teaching and leading spearfishing groups. Nice. And that was on Maui? Yeah. 
Which group or which, can you mention the the, the company that was you're with? That so was uh, Maui Spearfishing Academy. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was hoping you'd say that. I, I actually had Bobby on the podcast about two months ago. Yeah, Bobby and, is an awesome guy. And I really loved Maui Spearfishing Academy and Bobby's mission. It was yeah uh, very much into c- conservation. Yep. And he only allows the guests to shoot invasive species. There are other companies out there that will let you go out and just, you know, they, they want to see a fish at the end of the spear for the end of the day. And that's not what spearfishing should be. It shouldn't be go out and just to kill a fish. It should yep. be go out. And spear fishermen should be into conservation. We should be into protecting the ocean and protecting the reef. And I really loved that about his, his goal. We would teach people safety, breathing techniques, almost a mini little half day free diving class, not a full, um, you know, we didn't certify people, but then we'd really teach conservation and ocean preservation. And I loved that about Bobby. So I was really happy to join in with what he was doing. Oh yeah, man. I mean, I agree with you. And I, I just spent a day with him. We dove off Napoli and just being in the water with him. Hey, the guy is an absolute beast in the water. Uh, I mean, just like watching him three minute breath hold, poking his head in cracks at 90 feet. You know, it's like, that's pretty legit. Right. Uh, but then also I love, I love the angle he has, which, which is, as you mentioned, which is shooting invasives because people come out there to visit and I had this conversation with them, but I'm going to say it again because I love the idea. They want to learn. They want to do something they've never done like spearfish or free dive. But then they also feel like they're contributing to helping the natural environment by removing these invasives. It's like a two for one. I think it's just a great idea. Exactly. And instead on Oahu, I've seen a lot of people want to get into spearfishing and are Marines who want to pick up a, a gun and shoot something. And I see a beautiful, colorful little reef where a lot of people like to dive. And I see them go out there and just shoot any fish they can possibly yeah. line up on. Yeah. And that's that's sad and I've seen people shoot the kind of had a confrontation with someone. I was out with uh, some friends and diving down and I was swimming along the bottom and I heard a spear gun go off and it went off probably less than five feet from my head. And I saw the fish um, that they shot and it was the state fish. Yeah. Oh, geez. You're like, really? Yeah. So he came to the surface and I said to him, you know, do you, do you have any idea what fish that is? And and he said, yeah. And I said, what is it? And then he wouldn't say the name. And I said, are you going to eat that? He said, yeah. And it was probably four inches. <laughs> and I said, People like you are what, what give spearfishing a bad name. Yeah. We can't be out here protecting the reef, only shooting what we're going to eat and knowing what we're shooting. And, um, and it's just sad to see people doing that. And that's what I really loved. I think everyone should take a class like Bobby's yeah. class. Yeah. Yeah, I agree, man. Yeah, we need more Bobbies in the industry <laughs> sort of advocating like he does, you know. Time on Maui spearfishing and then it sounds like or looking at your timeline from what I've kind of pieced together and talking to you is you also then applied your free diving to guiding shark and whale tours on Kona or around Kona. Yes, that was actually um, I kind of kept taking different contracts. So I went to California and then ended up going back to um, Hawaii and I ended up on Big Island. And my first week there we did a um, tour with um, Wild Hawaii Ocean Adventure and they take you out swimming with uh, pilot whales oh, and yeah. the pilot whales are absolutely beautiful and occasionally oceanic white tips will swim in with the pilot whales and in talking with the owner and the other guides out there I 
I was so in awe of something like that. And those pelagic tours, you never know what you're going to see. Yeah. Um, you know, whale sharks, humpback whales. It, to me, it's just so exciting. And when they said one of the uh, guides was going to be taking off for about three months to uh, tag sharks, I immediately just talked to the owner. And I said, oh, hey, man. if you need someone to fill in for a little while, I can... Uh, can help out there and so we kind of went through a process and and talked about it for a while and i ended up joining them that's hot man so you kind of you put the spear gun down and we're just focused on just basically help putting people on the animals and helping them interact with the animals i mean and like you said you didn't you you wouldn't know what you're going to see day to day yeah and i really liked with wild hawaii ocean adventure too they had a it was a retired navy seal boat first of all which was fun in and of itself yeah um incredibly fast and insane turning radius um the captain was an amazing guy but also what i really liked is a maximum of eight people and they would only allow two people in the water at a time. So some of these tour boats will take people out and throw 20 people in the water and the animals are surrounded and everyone's right. cooking. And um, with them, you'd quietly slip into the water ahead of where the pilot whales are swimming. And then just you or myself as the guide and two guests would be in the water and we just quietly let the pilot whales pass underneath us. Oh, man. And it's it's incredible to see him above the water. But then people who especially people who are there on a vacation, who this is their maybe first time or snorkeling to see something like that for them was just absolutely incredible. Oh, it looks insane. I mean, just the fo- the shots you have of those those guys, those the, the pilot whales cruising by. I mean, talk about their behavior, you know? I mean, I've never I don't think I've I've spoken with anybody about how they act. I mean, how, what's the interaction like when you when you're free diving with them? So Pilot whales in general kind of are, don't care either way, I guess, about yeah. us. They'll, for the most part, just swim back. Sometimes the younger will actually come a little closer and are inquisitive. The bull males actually will, if there's a big pod and if they're not moving much, will kind of stay towards the end of the pod and just get very still and sometimes even get a little more vertical. Yeah. Um, but that's actually a sign that you should stay away. Um, <laughs> yeah, the warning. warning will uh, stay kind of towards the edge of the pod to protect the pod. And if they're not moving and they're kind of essentially just guarding the pod, uh, right. it's, it's time to back off. And they wouldn't actually let us let us or guests get close enough that it was an issue. Right. Most of the time, once the pilot wheels would see us, they would do a big dive um, underneath us. So we're looking at them at anywhere from 20 to 50 feet below us. Got it. Um, occasionally, depending on the pod, occasionally they could be a little more inquisitive. We've had a few times where they, you know, do a lap or two around us, kind of see what we were and then take off from there. The special treat once in a while was when the oceanic white tips would be hiding in with the pilot whales and oh. they were really good at hiding. Um, the first time I saw one, I, uh, I was still working with the other guide on the boat and he said, do you see that through then? I'm like, oh, yeah, look at those pilot whales. He's like, no, through the pilot whales. And uh, sure enough, there's an oceanic white tip hiding behind it. No the way. reason that they swim with them um, is the, the pilot whales will dive really deep, eat squid, but they can't um, digest the beaks. So they'll regurgitate the beaks. And then uh, the oceanic white tips will eat essentially the vomit from <laughs> the pilot whales. Free meal. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they often hunt in pairs, too. So the the time we saw one, he said, OK, you keep an eye on that one right there. I'm going to look for the one that's going to be coming in behind us. And I was kind of like, what? And sure enough, 30 seconds later, uh, from the bottom coming up really fast, another oceanic white tip just comes shooting up. And uh, Really? Yeah. 
and they, they'll kind of hunt together and and do that. And it was really interesting. And they'll they'll hassle you a little bit, won't they? The oceanic white tips. Yeah, they're very um, fast swimming, and they're also very inquisitive. Right. Um, the next time I swam with oceanic white tips was actually in um, off of Cat Island in the Bahamas, and we had several, probably about five six at a time. Um, and they're very inquisitive. They will just kind of sneak up and, and kind of act like they're taking off, do a quick dive, pop back up really fast, or <laughs> do a fast circle around you. And, really? And and they do hunt uh, together to a point. Um, so it's interesting to see how they kind of work together and, and distract you with one and sneak around with another. Right. Oh, man, that's cool. So if you see one, you you better, you can bet there's another one around somewhere. So you exactly. be looking. So now you've also been, I mean, you've been on a lot of just amazing places in the world to, to dive and, and shoot photos. Um, recently, one of the places that I'm kind of enamored with, I think many people are, is like Cocos Island and you have a ton of killer shots of being there, but you're out there for, I mean, it was like two weeks. I mean, how'd you get hooked up out there? What were you doing, you know, on that trip? So originally I had gone with, um, is team Sharkwater, which is a part of, uh, fins attached ocean conservation. And so they do, their mission is to protect sharks and, um, turtles and wildlife in general all over the world. Um, it was actually Rob Stewart's, uh, legacy that, Sharkwater was named after. Yeah. So it's a really cool boat and, and just a great mission. Um, I had actually heard about them through a friend and she invited me on the first trip was just actually a coastal trip. So we did a lot of the local uh, islands and, and coast and dove with everything from big schools of fish to um, we saw some manta rays, um, Galapagos sharks. But then at the end of the trip, they told us about this Cocos trip. And I immediately was like, we have to go on that one. Yeah. Um, and the Cocos trip was just absolutely amazing. It's a 30-hour boat ride out to Cocos. Um, but once you get there, it's it's very untouched. It's all a marine protected reserve. And uh, to school, it's I haven't been to Galapagos, but I've heard it's very, it's pretty similar to uh, wow. the beauty of Galapagos. Um, the schools of hammerhead sharks, the schools of big-eyed jacks, the just the wildlife out there was absolutely amazing. And actually, the all the birds that you would see inhabiting mm. the island too. It almost was like a scene from Jurassic Park. Really, one of the things I was looking to shots you have of these hammerhead sharks, as you just mentioned. You know, seeing those guys school, and they're kind of like I wouldn't. I mean, maybe a holy grail. Well, you know, a lot of people, they're hard, they're hard animals to interact with, right? Because they're, they're kind of shy. And you had the opportunity to see a school. I'm looking at a shot. But you also mentioned there was one time when there was like a feeding station where the hammerheads would come, kind of get vertical, and the little butterfly fish and angelfish would basically pick the parasites. I mean, describe that scene, what it was like watching that happen. How cool. First of all, you said it exactly right. It is really hard to get in with the hammerheads, and they're, they're very timid. And we were lost. That trip happened to be all scuba diving because of some park regulations. Um, unfortunately, free diving, we probably would have actually gotten closer because they're actually scared of scuba, scuba divers' bubbles. Um, but we still did our best. And what we would do is essentially, as soon as we got to the dive, do a drop down and just hide in the rocks yeah. as best we could and get close to the feeding stations. The feeding stations are, like you said, where the angelfish are hanging out and the uh, hammerheads will very, very slowly, it's interesting to watch, they'll very slowly ascend up the reef with their mouths open. And hammerheads are goofy looking as it is, but then to see them very slowly swimming with their mouth wide open, 
and having these these fish just go up and eat the parasites was really interesting. And also we had to do it. We'd almost kind of hold our breath while yeah. they were coming because if they would see the bubbles, they would quit. Uh, oh, man. So it was funny. A few times we'd see them doing the swim and they'd get right next to us and they had no idea we were there. And all of a sudden they would see us and they would just, their whole mannerism would change and they'd scoot off and swim away as fast as Wow, you got close enough where like you were, what, feet away, meters away from them. We were, a few times we were probably about eight foot away. Wow, which is really pretty good. I mean, looking at the shots you have, you could tell you're super close because the white of the fish, you know, of the shark, they're not like gray in the distance, kind of mottled dark gray, like you usually see shots of them. It's like, it looked like you were super close to them. I mean, they're just insane shots. Yeah, especially one day we just got lucky and they, they seemed to not care about us and just kept coming and swimming right over top of us and... Wow. That was uh, that was absolutely amazing. For the most part, like I said, they're skittish. And so once they'd realized we were there, they wouldn't come close. But this particular day, that we just got lucky with this, this group. How big of the school do you think you saw? Like how many animals would you say were in it? I would say probably 30, 40. Wow. And actually, the, you know, the sad thing, every time I go on a trip, kind of all over the world and you talk to someone who's been doing it for 20 years the scientist who was with us said they used to go there and it was common to see schools of 70 to 100 right um and he said that's becoming less and less frequent due to shark finning and yep. overfishing and things like that so he said we were actually really lucky he's been on several trips out there recently where they they've only seen a few at a time oh so wow even for us to see 30 to 40 together, he said was was one of the cooler experiences he's had too. Yeah. In recent times anyway. Right. And I mean, is that part of like, so the, the trip itself was like 13 days, I believe I saw on your Instagram. I mean, is that kind of like a require, you, you almost need to, do you need to put a lot of time in the water to get a get a chance? Like, you know, a three minute or five minute time with those fish. It's like, you're not just going to go out there for a weekend and pop down and see a bunch of hammerheads. I mean, is that part of the deal with spending so much time out there is that you got to put a lot of work in and a lot of time at depth and hope you get lucky enough to have one of these schools swim by you? Yeah. So we were doing every day, three dives a day. So we'd start off right away at 7am, get in the water, um, you know, have a quick break, get back in the water and then one more dive in the afternoon. Um, and so that was, it was a lot of dives, you know, three scuba sessions every day. Yeah. Um, a lot of time in the water and there's several dive sites there, but there's a few that had more of a chance of seeing, um, the hammerheads. But, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, a lot of times it was just kind of going down and waiting and hoping and, um, and there were some dives where we'd go down and you're freezing cold and the current was strong and you're not yeah. seeing anything and you're telling yourself, okay, just stay down here. Hopefully something cool happens. <laughs> but uh, it was, yeah, it was probably the most scuba diving I've done more on this trip than I've probably done the rest of my life put together. Yeah. I mean, I guess the, the silver lining of that is, is that the wildlife outside of beyond just the hammerheads is vast, right? So you're probably still just tripping out on these, like you said, massive schools of jacks or massive schools of these or, you know, a giant manta ray or something else, you know, flying around. So you're still just probably, I'm guessing, mesmerized at least a good chunk of the time. Yes. I mean, I always love being in the ocean. You never know what you're going to see. If you're seeing nothing, there's something around the corner. And, uh, you know, we we had a um, several Galapagos come by. We had, we knew there was tigers at one specific location. And one day we were sitting there, nothing around, and a tiger just cruised right past in front of us, probably 12 feet away from us. Oh, how cool. And we all, that was the highlight of that dive right there. Oh, man. How about the mantas? Any any like interactions with those guys who tend to be or can be a bit more kind of 
inquisitive and playful at times. Cocos, we had a few, but mm-hmm. actually Bad Islands, when I did the mm-hmm. coastal trip, I saw more mantas on that trip than I did out at Cocos. Yeah. The uh, the Bad Islands in uh, just off the coast were amazing for kind of a variety of wildlife. And actually, um, a friend and I, we were free diving that whole trip. So it was almost nice that we were kind of, I guess, doing our own thing while the scuba divers were all down there. So we had several close interactions with mantas because they'd come up right up to the surface. And we also got lucky enough to uh, have a whale shark swim right up to us. Oh, no way. And it was just her and I. And, uh, you know, I looked ahead. I, there were so many amazing things. I kept tapping her on the shoulder and saying, look at this cool little <laughs> jacks. Oh, my gosh, there's a manta ray. Look at this. And she's like, okay, I see it. I see it. And then finally I was grabbing her and I was like, oh, my gosh, it's a whale shark. And uh, and that was absolutely astounding. And we swam with it probably for 20 minutes. Just no way. When the scuba boat came over, the skiff actually said, okay, it's time to get in the water. And I said, or it's time to get in the boat. And I said, uh, absolutely not. You go get the scuba divers and bring them over here because they're going to want to see this whale shark. And the scientist's son had actually, he's been doing research for a long time and he had never seen a whale shark. So they picked that group up, brought him over and he was able to see his first whale shark, which was really cool for him. That's so cool. Those guys. So, what, what adult was a juvenile? What would you say that the this is a juvenile for sure? Yeah. Okay. Probably about fifteen foot long. It was my second whale shark I'd ever seen. The first one was actually on a um, spearfishing trip in Big Island. Yeah, and uh, we had one kind of just sneak up behind us without even realizing it <laughs> that's so unnerving i mean it's so insane to see like animals like that but like just like say you're surfing and you're sitting on your board zoning out and like a you know a juvenile humpback whale that's you know 20 feet long comes out of absolute nowhere or you're just diving and out of nowhere a 20 foot whale shark comes out it's always kind of unnerving to know that something that big can get so mm-hmm. close to you <laughs> without you knowing because there's a lot of other big things out there you know <laughs> exactly yeah, whale sharks are so kind of cool and inquisitive and slow and curious um he actually kept popping around to every boat out there every fisherman that was out there had to keep pulling their lines out of the water no way. I think it was the bubbles from the uh, the motor, and he would just kind of go up and try and essentially inhale the <laughs> bubbles, um, and then he would leave that boat and go to another and another. And so we kind of kept watching him for a while. So cool. Just like big puppy dogs just cruising around, just full of innocence, you know? Exactly. So cool. So then you mentioned Bahamas, Hawaii, Cocos Islands, you know, tropical, blue water, just, you know, life, you know, different than what you mentioned California, which is you know, a little more green, there's kelp, et cetera. And you spent some time, looks like recently, and also in your past in the waters of California. So kind of contrast a little bit, you know, like the difference, you know, but diving and, and taking photos here in California versus these other places we were talking about. So California is definitely a challenge. I've spent about six months in San Diego before I went back out to Hawaii again. And then um, I'm now up in Newport Beach. Uh, you kind of have to dive a lot to get good visibility there's some and really really pay attention to the forecast and the conditions and there's days i'd go out and there's five foot visibility and you can't there could be something cool around you but you just (laughs) you have no idea (laughs) but on a good day when you have i mean 20 foot visibility especially in san diego is is rare but when you do get that it's absolutely and amazing you have seals playing you have these beautiful it almost like you're in some type of enchanted forest 
They have long stalks of kelp and orange Garibaldi fish and calico bass and um, just a variety of marine life. It's it's colder, it's challenging, but when you hit conditions right, it's absolutely beautiful. And I just actually went to Catalina Island for the first time, and the conditions are it's much clearer, and we probably had about fifty foot visibility. Oh wow! And I now it's worth it to me almost to take a boat or a ferry or whatever across yeah. as much as possible. And actually, anytime you know, models want to shoot or or freedivers want to shoot, that's an amazing place with amazing kelp and just a beautiful, clear location. Yeah, man. I'm looking at some shots that you took recently in late October or a couple weeks back of a woman in a red suit looking up a kelp stock. It's just, it's mm-hmm. epic. I mean, the Channel Islands are so rad in general. I've been down there a bit and Catalina is just like, I shouldn't say it's the best, but you get a lot more clearer water there. And it's a little bit warmer too, you know? And when you get those days, man, it's just, you get clear water like on a reef, like with, you know, like in a tropical reef and that's insanely nice but a clear water day on a kelp forest mm-hmm. it's just different you know it's it's just it's amazing yeah and there's times too in hawaii where you know the sad fact of the matter is a lot of the reef in hawaii is dying and a lot of the fish are overfished um that's why a trip like cocos islands was so amazing to see mm-hmm. big schools of fish in areas where there's marine protection zones you just see the amount of fish and the amount of wildlife was incredible kind of compared air contrast to hawaii where a lot of the reef is yeah gone or on its way out um it, it was just cool to see ocean life that abundant and then california is just a whole nother world with yeah like it's it's like walking through a beautiful forest yeah yeah it's all so cool and it must have been pretty neat to go to cocos like you said and see the plentiful life there it restores your your i'm not saying say restores your stoke but just to see that which is what we all want that level of of abundance and diversity you know uh it just makes you feel good to know that stuff like that is still out there exactly it's. It also makes you want to. When I first got into this, I didn't know anything about conservation or where the ocean was heading. Um, you know, I was really big into spearfishing. I still do spearfish, but I'm very picky about what I will or won't shoot. And yeah. I look at life cycles and I look at abundance and look at any potential negative effects shooting an animal like that might have. So I've gotten really, really picky about what I um, will and won't shoot. And I've also got way more into, um, I guess, ocean conservation in effect of what I will eat from when I go out to eat seafood. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of uh, fish that we should not be eating because they're so overfished and and their populations are almost gone. The scientists were actually talking about how some companies are actually essentially buying as many bluefin tuna and freezing them because they're going to be gone soon. And their value, once they're essentially extinct, would be skyrocket. Absolutely insane. I know. It's just crazy. That's known, and we're treating the ocean like a commodity that uh, yeah i know man it's it's hard to wrap your head around and it's like it's clear and it's present and it it gets you down you can't let it get you down yeah it's just tough man i think like my sort of answer to it is is kind of along the lines of what you're saying which is inform myself and make the best choices i can when i can you know and it's actually really easy to do that. We're just so used to just buying something and just eating it, consuming it. But like when you look at, like you mentioned, making the right choices when, of fish, like Seafood Watch or FishWise, other programs that are out there that will in five seconds or less through a website, an app, a little card tell you, 
if this fish is like sustainable, what is it, you know, and then kind of help inform your decisions. Uh, there's actually, it's not that hard to do. It's just sort of changing the way we live day to day, but in a small way. And when you do it, you're like, well, that's really easy just to like, look at this app really quick before I order off this menu, you know? Mm-hmm. I almost wish we, the, the hard part is your average person who is not into diving or into the, any type of knowledge of the ocean has no idea. That's and right. So, and one thing growing up too, I never really sushi and pokey and none of that was really a thing. And that's now blown up like crazy. There's a sushi restaurant on every corner. Pokey shops are popping up all over the place. And, uh, and you know, I love both of those, but also yeah. it gets to a point where we're going to overfish. Everything. Yeah. And even we have to look at some of these supposed um, tuna farms or other sustainable yeah. measures aren't as sustainable as we thought. Some of the tuna farms have, go out and net anchovies and net of their bait fish to feed those tuna. So now we're running out of the bait fish, which natural um, yeah. tuna would be going after. And so we're eliminating their food source, which hurts hurts them just as much. So I know, man. I wish almost almost like calories had to be put on a menu um, at some restaurants. We would put how, um, the yeah. bought, where it came from, the sustainability level, something like that, so that people could be informed. Because everyone loves the ocean, but a lot of people just don't have the knowledge yep. to know that what they're eating is disruptive. Yeah, it's true. It's very true, man. So as you continue to like take photos underwater a lot, you know, there's an aspect of that, which is, you know, your photography, you know, just some, anything you do just gets better over time, you know, as you tweak and tune. That's one aspect. The other is just like you physically being in the water, man. Like when you're diving a bunch, you just get stronger, et cetera. So how have you seen your sort of free diving, your ability to not only go deep, but also just length, like time underwater. How has that changed over the last couple of years since you've been really basically getting out a lot, doing a lot of different, you know, uh, projects underwater? It's interesting actually with that, because that waxes and wanes um, very much dependent on your environment and your amount of training you put into it. When I was living on Big Island, I was training with some some really good divers. I mean, you have Kurt Chambers out there and, oh. and Dan Koval and, and we'd go out line diving and we were really focusing on depth and pushing your breath hold and things like that. Um, and then I come back to California and your depth, if we're out spearfishing <laughs> yeah. is 30, 40 foot max. Yeah. Um, and so, and I found my breath hold actually kind of diminishing a little bit um, here just through lack of training and pushing myself. Also, when I was out um, on Oahu, Rudy is another really good free diver out there. And we would do a variable training where we're going underwater and do CO2 tables, swimming the length of a rope and and it's like anything else, like running or lifting. The more you do it um, and the more you kind of push yourself, the better you get. When you kind of back off of it for a while, kind of... You lose it. ...by the wayside, yeah. But um, it's always interesting hitting new, whether it's holding your breath time or whether it's depth training. Every time you hit a new limit, it increases your confidence. Yeah. And you know, I can do this now. And so the next time you do it, it's uh, it's much more... I guess, relaxing to have that confidence to know that I can hit that depth and I can go that deep. You know, a lot of people come up to me and say, I can't hold my breath for 20 seconds or I couldn't, I can't get more than 10 feet mm-hmm. under the water. And I always tell them you can, I don't have any, any ability that, you know, no one else has. It's just learning the techniques and going through the training and also mentally pushing past some of those barriers um, that we think are limiting our breath hold. 
Yeah, a hundred percent, man. The the mental part is it's an interesting dynamic or or piece of anything in the ocean, but definitely free diving. Whereas it's like once you know you're confident of I don't know diving twenty feet when you can only do ten before or whatever that is, or your your spear stuck in a crack and you're you realize you've been under for a minute 45, which you've never really done more than a minute before, but you were totally cool. Like those weird little mental breakthroughs, they really like, they give you this confidence mm-hmm. in days after. It's pretty cool. It was actually really funny when I first got up to big on with my first weekend out there um, diving with Kurt Chambers, line diving. Uh, he was trying to push me to kind of hit a new depth. And I told him, you know, I can't hit that depth. There's no way. And I can't, I don't have that long of a breath hold. And so we were kind of talking and we we're working together. And all of a sudden I saw a big pot of dolphins coming um, by. And so I did a big drop and I swam and I was taking pictures of the dolphins and swimming next to him. It was probably 30, 40 foot. And I was just, when you're, when you're around something like that, you even forget that you're in the water. You forget yeah breathing and i came up and i'm like did you see those dolphins and he's like we see them every day but then uh he said do you have any idea how long you're down there and at that time i didn't even have a dive watch or anything and he said you were down there for almost two and a half minutes and he's like you're trying to tell me that you can't hit this depth because your breath hold yeah i just watched you for two and a half minutes swim with dolphins <laughs> and uh, and so he, he pointed out that mental um barrier that we place on ourselves yeah and, uh, and that was interesting to look at it that way it is. And the distraction underwater is like, for me anyway, like again, wrestling with the fish that's in a crack and realizing that you're you're totally fine pushing be- well beyond what you normally think your threshold is. Even on Saturday, I took my kids and a buddy down to Big Sur and we were diving and, you know, you, do, you start to feel, oh, okay, my lungs, I, you know, mentally thinking how much more time you have. And then all of a sudden these three sea lions came and they just checked me out for a minute. But just seeing them and like having that face to face for three seconds or whatever it was, it made me completely forget about what I th- where I thought my breath hold was at, and I just kept going. And I was like, "Wow!" I just it gave me like an extra thirty seconds, easy, without having any issues. Just having a distraction away from of my mind, away from where my breath is. You know, it's funny. Yeah, that's one thing I think for photography for me uh, is it's kind of this challenge to capture an image underwater and I forget that I'm not breathing and I forget that I'm not, uh, you know, taking any air. I take, I forget about everything else except capturing that image and, and and enjoying the experience. That's cool. Super meditative. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. uh, I've I've found times where I go out without the camera and I'm just swimming for fun, which is also amazing. I love it. Um, But there's times where I'm like, okay, you know, my breath hold's done and then go out to the same spot with the camera and I'm just sitting at the bottom and just, you know, taking pictures of of the marine life or whatever it is. And I'm down there for double the time. Right. Ah, It's amazing, man. So kind of tied to all this or the physical aspect of, of what you're doing in the water. You know, you just spent some time at the Extreme Performance Training Fitness Event or XPT, the home of legendary legends, Laird Hamilton and Gabby Reese, man. Talk about that. Were you training? Were you taking photos? Both? What was going on? So that was actually just such an incredible experience and kind of a last minute thing. My buddy Kaj, uh, who's a Navy SEAL, he does training all over the world. But um, I had shot with him in Panama and in um, the Bahamas on some of their spearfishing trips and and we've dove together quite a few places and he told me about this event and so I went up to Laird's house and it was a really incredible event. Um, They work with any type of um, elite athletes, a lot of special forces and they focus on different types of training, anaerobic training. Um, A lot of big wave surfers are doing it actually too 
And that's obviously where Laird's background is. Just focusing on on breath hold, but also breath hold in a essentially a stimulating environment. Yep. Um, you know, obviously when you're big wave surfing, you don't have the time to to relax, to um, you know take a, a big deep breath. So he's really focusing on that type of training. And then they also are focusing on um, healing um, techniques. And um, we did the cold therapy and then the heat therapy and kind of going back and forth between those two. And so that was a that was a really incredible experience. And actually, I was uh, shooting for the event as well, too. Wow. So you got to do both. So that's that's killer. So curious, a couple of questions, actually. Um, and you mentioned your, your friend Kosh, who's, a, you know, legit a Navy SEAL type guy, just a real badass in many different ways, I'm sure. But the other sort of special force type folks who were there, I've always been curious, you know, like, like some people are just attuned to the water. It's all we want to do. But these guys, they have to do all kinds of different stuff, you know. And so what did you notice from the special forces guys who are there, like their ability, their natural um, comfortability uh, to, to be in the water. I mean, were, were they just like somebody like us who just spends a ton of time in the ocean anyway? It pretty much, I actually, when I first got out there, I was like, okay, you know, I'm a free diver and I have all this training. I'm going to show them how, you know, how many times right. I can walk across the pool, you know, carrying weights and whatnot. Um, I think, you know, they go through some type of training to get comfortable in the water, but not obviously to the extent of what a free diver does. Yeah. But I think the big thing I notice is the mental focus and the mental strength that they have they're pushing themselves hard and they they don't care if um, (laughs) you know they're holding weights and they'll go to the end of the pool they're not stopping until they get to the other end one of them almost had a little kind of lmc and and they're just i think the mental conditioning that they go through the the special forces really you could yeah and the underwater environment too and there is such a mental component of this you know a lot of people they that think they can't um do something they their body physically can and it's just pushing past those mental barriers yeah yeah 100 percent for sure and so did you take away some pretty cool like techniques or tips and tricks to use in your own either training or day-to-day diving in the water yeah it was just interesting to um, kind of look at more conditioning underwater so we'd have weights and we would have to um, swim a weight from one end of the pool to the other or walk weights um, on the bottom. And so really kind of a lot of the training that I've done is either relaxation techniques or efficiency techniques. Mm-hmm. So this was totally different. It was, this was anaerobic, right? Essentially conditioning and pushing yourself, um, while you're utilizing, you know, as many muscles as possible. Um, so it's just a, a totally different type of training in Hawaii. We used to do a variation. We'd take big rocks and do rock running. Cool. And yeah. uh, it's somewhat similar to that, but it was just cool to see it in a um, in a professional standpoint with instructors that were really knowledgeable about the physiology of right. what's happening to your body. Yeah, man, that's sweet. That's one of the things I'm oh, I'm jealous about, like Hawaii and warm water in general, warm, clear water being in Santa Cruz, just the rock running. Like you can't, you don't really go rock running when the water is 50 degrees and it's like six foot visibility. You know, I just think that'd be pretty sweet to go do on a whim if you wanted to with some buddies. Yeah. <laughs> I've actually, uh, I've got lucky enough that the place I'm at is right on the ocean here. Yeah. And we have a kettlebell here and I've thought about just going out and doing, <laughs> yeah. I won't be able to see a darn thing, but. Uh, That's right. Get me as close to Hawaii as I can. Yeah, man. <laughs> but yeah, it'd, you'd, uh, you'd be practicing a little cryotherapy as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Two for one. <laughs> 
So then John, um, you know, for, for somebody like maybe a high school kid or a college kid who's seeing what you're doing, who's interested in the ocean, interested in, you know, media and content and maybe it's photography, other things. I mean, just to stick on photography. I mean, your, where you came, your path's been organic just by picking up the camera and then here you are through a lot of hard work and just also like, you know, some artistic, um, you know, capabilities, but what would you say to somebody who's, you know, 20 years old, 18, who just loves what you're doing and would love to pursue this themselves? I would say one for me, looking, trying to find a mentor mm-hmm. and looking at people who are, are already doing it and reaching out to them um, it definitely can help. Also, just spending as much time as possible in the water and looking at what you'd potentially want to shoot, looking at lighting, looking at angles, looking at, you know, if you give one person a camera and they want to go out and take a picture say they see a dolphin versus you someone who thinks about lighting and angles and how the ocean can all kind of work together and the timing of it there's such a big difference so i think for me one trying to learn photography at first and really learning about composition and lighting and different rules but then also when it's okay to break those rules um just spending a lot of time with that first and then incorporating those that knowledge into the water aspect of it um was huge and also you don't need necessarily to go out and spend a lot of money right away yeah you can start off with gopros actually had gopro now shoots in raw they have some amazing capabilities you can start off with something like that so you don't need to have to spend thousands of dollars you could start off with a gopro practice your shooting practice your editing honestly editing was one of the biggest battles Mm. when i look back at my photography and i look at the few first few pictures which i thought at the time were amazing yeah um, and now I see how long my editing has come uh, or how far it has come. It just uh, it makes a big difference. So you can now use a GoPro and then practice editing those GoPro pictures and, and then, you know, find out if it is something you're passionate about before you decide to spend thousands of dollars on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good call, man. Good. Well, good advice. Good wisdom from a guy who's, what I can tell, crushing it. I mean, I know you're moving fast, running all over the place, doing some cool stuff, but I love the content you have. And it makes, I just, again, I spent like an hour just <laughs> flipping through it all last night, man. So I appreciate you sharing it with the world. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me on here. I appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. Thanks again. And, and tell us like, where can people find, I'll put some links to um, your Instagram and stuff, but you have a website too, uh, jkowitzphotography.com. So uh, we'll put that in there. And for folks want to, you know, dig in more and see what you're up to, definitely go there and check out Instagram and everything. Exactly. Yeah. I'm just working on a jkowitz uh, photography Facebook page where I'll actually put a little bit of the above water stuff I'm starting doing too. Cool. Um, but then, yeah, they can find me there, jcoats Instagram or um, jcoatsphotography.com. Sweet, sweet. Awesome, man. We'll put all those links in here. But uh, John, it's been fun, man. And I uh, appreciate you t- your time and sharing everything with us. And uh, thanks again, man. It's been great having you. Sounds good. Let's get out diving sometime. I love it. If you're ever up in Santa Cruz and want to get some kelp for Big Sur or Carmel, man, it's my backyard. So uh, we'd love to get you out. Sounds good. Cool. Thanks so much. Uh, thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening uh, to another podcast episode. Can't do it without you. And uh, so thrilled to have you here supporting uh, myself and the podcast and all the guests uh, continually. Always appreciate a positive um, rating on your, uh, your podcast app, whether it be you know Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, you name it. Just helps, helps grow the podcast and uh, spread awareness. So thanks for that. And then any uh, social media mentions, always super appreciative. And uh, if you know somebody who you think would be great to have on the podcast to share the, about their ocean life, please hit me up. I'd love to chat with them. Or if you think you'd like to, let me know. Uh, email is josh at 
thisoceanlife.tv. All right. Thanks, guys.